Well, welcome to King's Cross. It's good to be at church with you all this morning. We're, we're in Galatians 5 this morning, uh, picking up in verse 13. Last week we were in Galatians 5, 1 through 6, and you may be thinking, what happened to verses 7 through 12? Uh, and the answer to that is that in, in any time that somebody writes a lot, whether it's a book or a movie or, or a letter, there's some redundancy, and you come back and you pick up on similar themes over and over. Uh, and so as I'm preparing to preach this week, one, we, we got into a little bit of 7 through 12 last week, but this is a theme that's really picked up in chapter 4 that we spent two sermons on already. So I want to encourage you, if you were gone or missed some of chapter 4, there's two sermons that really cover the meat of what Paul's talking about in chapter 5, verses 7 through 12 that I would encourage you to go listen to. One is the sermon on October 15th called Don't Turn Back, and the other is the sermon on October 22nd called True Christian Leadership. Both of those can be found anywhere where you listen to podcasts. So I'd encourage you, again, similar themes in verses 7 through 12 as those sermons. Today, we're picking up in verse 13, and this will be our last sermon in Galatians for now. So next week, we'll get into... uh, a sermon series that will take us through Christmas and Advent. In the new year, we'll, we'll preach a few other sermons, and then sometime in January or February, we'll come back for the, the end of Galatians, beginning in verse 16. So today, we're in verses 13 through 15, and we're continuing to think about this ever-present concept in Galatians of freedom. So turn there with me now if you haven't. Galatians 5, I'll read verses 13 through 15. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters... Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. March 23rd, 1775, delegates from Virginia gathered at St. John's Church in Richmond. It was a month prior to the revolution, and they were gathering for the Second Virginia Convention, and they, they were looking at the landscape, they were reading the tea leaves, they understood that though the war had not officially started, it would begin soon. And so they gathered to debate whether and to what extent Virginia should get involved in preparations for the war. Specifically, should they prepare and send a militia to begin fighting? And it was in this context, in this debate, that a delegate from Hanover County stood and gave a speech that contained one of what would become the most famous lines in American lore. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, he said, but there is no peace. The war has actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear? Or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Patrick Henry's words are baked into the essence of the American dream, right? They're, they're baked into the ethos of what we imagine it means to be an American. Many would share this sentiment that liberty or freedom is of such great value that the unfree life is not even a life worth living at all. But few of us stop to ask, well, what is freedom? What actually is the liberty that is so valuable that it's worth dying for? The common notion 
<clears throat> is that freedom is a lack of constraints. We pick this mindset up from a very early age. I was thinking this week about the, the playground recess retort that you would give. If, if you hurt somebody's feelings with your words and they said they didn't like what you, you said, you would say, what, it's a free country, I can say whatever I want. Which It doesn't exactly mean that, but we, we pick up on that as a kid. We carry it into our adult lives, right? We carry it into our political slogans. My body, my choice. You just In those four words, you get the sense that freedom means nobody from the outside can put any parameters on my life. And to this point in Galatians, Paul is emphasizing a, a very similar view of freedom. He's talking about what philosophers call negative freedom or freedom from. Freedom from outside external constraints. You are not slaves to the law anymore, Paul has been saying. You're free from the yoke of the law. You used to be under this external authority, but Christ has set you free. So don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. But isn't there more to freedom than a mere lack of constraint? Terry Eagleton, who's a literary critic, wrote in a book review on a book about free will, interestingly enough, he, he's criticizing what he thinks is this underdeveloped notion of freedom as mere absence of constraints. He says, vacuous or empty, meaningless, unfulfilling is the idea that freedom consists in a total absence of constraint, as in the callow postmodern worship of options. The future, one postmodern thinker excitingly remarked, will, just be, will be just like the present, only with more options. On this theory, the individual confronts a range of possibilities with complete freedom to decide among them. And this is, this is the world we live in, right? The, the sense that the world is your oyster. You have as many options as you can think of. You can do, you can be whoever, whatever you want, whether it comes to your sexuality or your gender identity, whether it comes to your political persuasion, whether it comes to what you want to do with your career, your life. You can choose from an unlimited number of options, the only problem with this, Eagleton says, is that to be entirely free of constraints would mean that you had no basis at all on which to choose one option or the other. In other words, he's saying, it, if there's no constraints in your life, then what would make one option better than another? Why would you feel compelled to choose one thing and not to choose another thing? If, if you're totally free, if all options are equal, why would you choose one and not the other? It turns out, at least in his view, that pure negative freedom, freedom from, doesn't actually give you anything positive to live for. It doesn't give you a compelling vision of life. There's no driving power. We can switch to a practical place where we see this playing out in the world of art. Uh, there's an art critic named Nicholas Parsons who was lamenting the, uh, the decline of the quality of contemporary art. He said the growing self-absorption and narcissism of our over-consumerized society. So when he says that, think what Eagleton was just talking about, right? A world where there are no limits, everything is options, where you can be whatever you want to be, become whoever you want to become, so long as you can buy the things that help you be whoever you want to be. He says, this society has encouraged the notion that self-expression is always creative. But what does it create? In the world of art, he says, nothing worth seeing and he quotes Leonardo da Vinci, who said, art breathes from containments and suffocates from freedom. 
Art breathes from containments. When there are rules, when there are boundaries in place that, that bring some confinement on art, there's, there's room for life and for breath and for growth. But when there are no rules, no limits, art, he says, suffocates. And I would say that this is true in all of life, whether it's ethics and morality or, or whatever. So if freedom is not the mere absence of constraint, then we would do well to ask, what is it? Uh, we've been talking about negative freedom, freedom from. There's a counterpart. We could call it positive freedom. It's, if negative freedom is freedom from, positive freedom is freedom for. If negative freedom is the absence of external constraints, then positive freedom is the presence of the right internal motives, or you might say the right constraints. Uh, I'll give you an illustration that I hope will help you grasp this. This is from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is a great online resource. If you ever want to spend like five minutes to try to understand some philosophical idea, just go to that website. It's great. Uh, but it gives this illustration. So imagine that you, you wake up one morning, and you get in your car, and you back out of your driveway, and you pull out onto your street, and uh, you come to where the first stop sign is supposed to be, and you notice that it's not there. It's gone. I think that's interesting. Some, somebody must have vandalized, you know, pulled out the stop sign. So you, you stop anyway because you know there's supposed to be a stop sign there. And you keep going. And as you head toward the main road, you notice, interestingly, that there are no other cars on the road. You, you haven't seen a single car. You come to where the next stop sign's supposed to be, and it's also gone. And you get to the intersection where you're supposed to stop at a red light to turn onto the main road, and the red light's gone. This is weird, but you pull out slowly and carefully anyway, and you get on the main road, and you realize there are still no other cars. Every red light has been removed. You pull onto the interstate, and you realize there's no speed limit signs. There's still no other cars. And after a few minutes, you feel so utterly free that you realize, I can drive as fast or as slow as I want. I can take any exit that I want. I can turn around and drive backwards and drive the wrong way if I want. And some of you are thinking, after living in Nashville, Taylor's describing the new heavens and new earth right now. This is total automotive freedom. You can do whatever you want. And now I want you to replay the scenario and imagine that same situation, you get in your car, you back out, uh, you pull out to the main street, but then you drive half a mile and you turn right where a red light should be and then you drive another half mile and you take your second left and then after about a quarter of a mile you pull off on the right side of the road and pull into a convenience store where you go in to buy cigarettes because you woke up that morning with an extreme nicotine headache and realized I don't have any cigarettes at home. And you never, you may have thought it was convenient that the road was empty, but you never questioned which way you were gonna turn or how fast or how slow you were gonna go because you knew exactly I need to go there to appease my addiction. Well, how free were you really? The road may have been completely empty. You may have been able to do whatever you wanted, but how free were you really? Here's the relationship between these two kinds of freedom. Negative freedom allows you to do what you want, but positive freedom allows you to want the right things. Negative freedom allows you to do what you want, but positive freedom allows you to want the right things. Every single person, this is the reality of human nature, every single person is bound by his or her desires or affections, our highest internal values, our will, we all, every single person, we all do what we ultimately most want to do insofar as we have the ability to do it. But the question is, do we want the right things? We can be free from every external restriction, but we are all bound by our desires, our affections, our will. So the question is, do we desire the right things? Do we have the right affections? Do we have a rightly directed will? That's what Galatians 5, 13 through 15 
is about. It's about complementing your negative freedom from the law with a positive freedom of love. Paul's focus so far, again, has been on negative freedom. It's been, you've been freed from the law, right? He's been pounding this home over and over and over again. Remember, context of Galatians, Paul goes, he plants a church on the pure gospel message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. You don't have to add any works to faith in order to be saved. And you have some people coming in, they're called Judaizers, who say, no, 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 if you want to truly become a Christian, you have to become a Jew first. You have to obey the Jewish law. You have to get circumcised. You have to do this and that. And Paul says, no, you don't. You no longer have to meet the standard of the law. Christ met it for you through his perfect and sinless life. And and you no longer, not only that, you no longer have to bear the punishment of not meeting the law because Christ took it for you. That's the gospel in Galatians. We deserve the curse of not obeying the law, but Christ took it for us. He deserved the blessing but he gave it to us. That's what Paul's been arguing for five chapters. But, he says, this is where we get to today, but that negative freedom is not actually enough for true flourishing. If you want to really and truly flourish, what you need is something in addition to this negative freedom. And he gives us a picture here of what a life of pure negative freedom, freedom from, looks like. He says, you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. So freedom from the law, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Skip to verse 15. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. The word only in verse 13, one commentator said, is like the hinge on which this entire letter turns. It turns, we could say, from negative freedom to positive freedom, from freedom from the law to freedom for love. Paul is is saying with this word only, he's giving one clear central warning. He says only what? Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, we need to stop if we want to understand this and define two words The first is the word flesh. This is a really important word. It's a really important concept in the Apostle Paul's writing. When we hear flesh, we think of what? We think of the body. We think of of skin. We think of the, the tangible material part of the human self as opposed maybe to the immaterial part of the self, the soul. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is not saying that your body, the material part of yourself, is bad, and your soul, the immaterial part of yourself, is good, and that salvation is your your soul somehow escaping the prison house of your body and going and living forever in a disembodied heaven floating around on clouds. That's not Christianity. That's actually one of the first heresies. It's called Gnosticism. It's alive and well today, but it's not Christianity. The flesh John Stott says, the the flesh, in Paul's writing, is not what clothes our bony skeleton, but our fallen human nature, which we inherited from our parents, and they inherited from theirs, and which is twisted with self-centeredness, and therefore prone to sin. So God created humanity in Genesis 1 and 2. And everything that he creates, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And he creates humanity, and he says, it's very good. Human nature, as created by God, is good. The flesh, when Paul uses that word, what he means is the twisted, sort of pulled inside out, corrupted human nature after the fall, after Genesis 3. It's it's totally self-centered, Stott says, and therefore prone to sin. A good example of this 
in uh, Greek mythology is the character Narcissus, which of course we get our word narcissist or narcissistic from. Uh, he was the most beautiful person in all of the land, and everybody knew it. The, the tales say that men and women alike recognized that Narcissus was the most strikingly handsome creature on the face of the earth. And one day he was walking by a, a pool where he saw his reflection, and he learned what everybody else had learned. Said, wow, that's a, that's a good-looking person. And so he, he stood there, and he begins to stare at himself in this reflecting pool, and he becomes so infatuated with his own beauty and his own reflection that he stays and stares for so long that he begins to neglect himself. He stops eating. He stops drinking. And eventually, he just dies from self-infatuation because he, he, he's so obsessed with himself. That is a picture of the flesh. That after the fall, we become so infatuated with self. We become the Lord of our own lives instead of God that we eventually kill ourselves from self-obsession. This goes back to, I've referenced this several times in Galatians, but St. Augustine drew this contrast between love and lust. He said, love, properly speaking, is when God is your highest affection, God is on the, the throne of your life, and you love everybody and everything else through God, for God's sake. Lust, on the other hand, is when I am on the throne of my own life, I am the chief of my own affections, and I don't properly love anybody, but I just use everybody else for the purposes of my own self-centeredness. The flesh is the impulse of fallen humanity to serve itself and to use everyone and everything else in the process of service to self. That's the first word to define in this short phrase. The second is the word opportunity. He says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. This word has an interesting history. It was often used in military contexts to refer to sort of a base of operations, the place where you would come together and plan your offensive. Uh, the, the big Greek biblical dictionary defines this word. It says, a base or a circumstance from which other action becomes possible such as the starting point or base of operations for an expedition, the resources needed to carry through an undertaking, or a set of convenient circumstances for carrying out some purpose. Paul is saying that if you are not careful, your freedom can become the base of operations for your sinful self-centeredness. If you're not careful, your freedom from the law can become the launching pad of your selfishness. And we can, we can practically see how this plays out, can't we, in, in, in church life. I thought of a few examples this week. You know, for one, this often comes up in Christian, like among different generations of Christians. But we, we see in the scriptures that we have freedom to drink beverage alcohol. It's not, it's not prohibited in scripture. It's even at times presented as a gift from the Lord. But we can, we can then take that and say, well, these other people are offended by my drinking. What? I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. Why do I care what they think? I'm not going to hold back my own freedom just because it offends somebody else. Think of this in, in our dress, right? You're not, you're not justified by your modesty. But again, think of generational divides. You might think, what do I care if some old person doesn't like the way that I dress? I'm going to dress how I want. They need to get over it. They need to get with the times. You can think of this in our language, right? Think, I'm free in Christ. I'm not justified by never saying any curse words. What do I care if I offend somebody with my language? One very palpable example of this in the last couple years, what do I care if the government says I need to wear a mask when I go out because of a pandemic? I'm free in Christ to do whatever I want. 
What do I care if I think it's going to offend somebody else? They need to get over it. They're wrong anyway. In each of these cases, I think if Paul were giving pastoral counsel, he might say, sure, you're right. You're free. You're not justified by any of those behaviors. But let me just ask, what's motivating you? What's motivating your decision? What's in your heart? What's, what's your highest desire? What's your ultimate aim? Is it yourself? Is it your freedom? Is it your liberty? Is it your flesh? <laughs> because if it's the flesh that's ultimately driving you, Paul would say, watch out, because if a nation or a community or a family or a church starts living this way, you might bite and devour each other. And if you bite and devour each other, you will consume one another. And friends, this happens. I know that in the year and a half that we've been doing church together, it's been really sweet, and there's been so much unity and like-mindedness, and you might think it is unimaginable that we could start biting and devouring and consuming one another, but ironically, it is when we feel so united and like-minded that this sort of thing can creep in the quickest. Why do I say that? Because when we're not feeling the friction of disagreeing with people about sort of secondary preference type of things, very quickly and very easily, it could become the case that our unity is in all those secondary things that we agree on. And it's not in Christ anymore. It's not in the Spirit anymore. It's not in the Gospel. It's not in the Scriptures anymore. And then what happens? All of a sudden, there's some cultural event or some church event that exposes maybe we're not as on the same page about things as we thought we were. Or maybe I've changed on this issue, or you've changed, or maybe we grow and we bring people in who don't agree with us on many of these things, and all of a sudden, we start biting and devouring each other. Or as James puts it in James 4, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they spring from your passions? Don't they spring from the flesh using your freedom as an opportunity for its own gains? Paul says there's a, there's a better way. Negative freedom isn't enough. It must be complemented with positive freedom. It's not enough to be freed from the law as a means of self-justification. We also need to become free to love the law as a means of serving other people. And what is the law? He sums it up, right? He says the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. True freedom is not just about being able to do whatever you want without penalty. It's about wanting the right things. And he tells us what the right things are. Look back at verse 13. Don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather instead serve one another through love. This is the amazing, one of the amazing things about the gospel is that it always keeps you on your toes. It, just when you think you've got it down, just when you think you understand it, you realize, I don't even, I've barely begun to understand this. Paul has been just banging the drum of freedom over and over and over again in Galatians. Don't let anybody take you captive. Don't submit yourself as a slave to other people's ideas or beliefs or whatever. Don't, don't take on this heavy yoke of slavery. And then he gets here and he inserts this little word, serve. Serve one another through love. The word serve is the verb version of the Greek noun doulos, which means slave. It do, sometimes our Bibles euphemistically translated as serve. I was reading this week, nowhere outside of English transla translations of the Bible is this word ever translated as serve. It means slave. 
how radical is this? Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. But don't let your freedom become the home base for your sinful, selfish nature. Instead, freely choose to enslave yourselves to your brothers and sisters. Freely choose in your freedom to enslave yourselves to your brothers and sisters through love. How radical is that? Paul recognizes what modern philosophers recognize, that you can be free from every external constraint, but everybody is constrained internally by something. And true freedom is being constrained internally, not by your natural and sinful and fallen passions, not by the flesh. That's not freedom at all. That's slavery. You don't want to be enslaved to your appetites, to yourself. Paul says in uh, 1 Timothy, people are, their, their, their God is their belly. What a picture of being enslaved to your appetites. But the Christian, he says, freely chooses to be enslaved by their love for brothers and sisters. What does this look like in practice? Paul actually gives us a really helpful picture in another letter, 1 Corinthians. Um, for context, the, the Corinthian church is a, a church that's meeting in a, in a non-Jewish context. There are Jewish Christians there, but the majority of them are not Jewish. They're Gentile background. And the practice that, of their culture was that they would sacrifice animals and, as acts of worship dedicated to particular gods, right? So they would perform these sacrifices of animals to gods. And then they would host meals in honor of those gods where they would eat the animal. But often the animal was far too large to eat, to consume in one meal. And so they would sell the leftover meat in the marketplace. So, so picture like you're going to Publix today and you're, you're buying some food for dinner, and it's been sacrificed to a pagan god. So the, the ethical conundrum rises in Corinth, should we eat that meat or not? Are we participating in idol worship if we eat that? And there's two factions in the church. There's one group that Paul calls the strong Christians. They have a strong conscience. They're not bothered by eating this meat. They recognize, as Paul says, the idols are nothing. And we're free to eat this. We're not, we're not worshiping these pagan gods by eating this. But then there's another group that he calls the weaker Christians, those with a weak conscience. And these are folks who have recently converted. They've come out of this background where they were participating in that worship. And they cannot eat this meat without it defiling their conscience, without feeling like, I'm worshiping the old gods that I used to worship. And so they wouldn't do it. And the stronger Christians are getting a little annoyed with the weaker Christians. It's like slow in their roll when they try to have a potluck, right? And Paul writes to him and he says, listen, you may be right, strong Christians. It may not be inherently sinful for you to eat that meat. But if you defile the conscience of your brothers and sisters, you are sinning against them. And if you sin against them, you're sinning against Christ who died to purchase them. And Paul radically says, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat. That's what true freedom looks like. A willing to not hold tight-fistedly to your rights, but to, to let go of them and lay them down for the sake of serving your brothers and sisters. That's what love looks like, loving God first and others so sacrificially that you're, again, willing to freely enslave yourselves to them for their good. Religion without negative freedom is legalism. We've seen that. Paul denounces that clearly. But the presence of, of negative freedom and the absence of positive freedom is chaos. 
It's anarchy. It's fragmentation. It's every person doing whatever they want. And if you want a picture of that, like, how's the American project going? Founded on the love for freedom, how are we doing right now? Isn't it just one person defending their freedoms against everybody else? Isn't it totally alienated and isolated and fragmented? God forbid that the church should ever become like that. What we are called to be is a free community of love, a free community of service, not a free community of self. But how do we, how do we get there? How do we actually get that internal freedom? There's a beautiful, one of the most beautiful pictures that we get of this in the Bible uh, is an example of Jesus himself. The night before he was um, betrayed and arrested and eventually crucified, he was having a Passover meal with his disciples. And they go up to this upper room, and it's time to eat, and somebody had to wash their feet. Now, if you don't know the world of the Bible, that may seem weird, uh, but there's a few factors here. One, everybody got around on foot, right, or on animals. There's no cars. They wore open-toed shoes. There's no proper paved roads. There's no indoor plumbing. There's animals everywhere. You can imagine how at the end of a long and dusty walk, your feet are going to be nasty. And you come in to eat dinner, and on top of all that, the way that you eat is you recline at a table where your feet are on the same vertical level as the food. So if somebody doesn't wash their feet before the meal, it's going to be a very unenjoyable meal. But it was such a gross and nasty job that it was reserved for the lowest of servants. And evidently, at this Passover meal, none of those servants were in the room. And rather than the disciples reading the room and recognizing who they were and getting up and serving, nobody else was doing it, and Jesus gets up. And the text says that he, he takes up a garment, and he takes a basin and fills it with water, and he stoops down, and he washes the stinky, nasty feet of his disciples. The greatest person in the room took the job of the lowest slave to serve those whom he loved. And of course, this is just a picture. It's just a parable of what he was going to do the very next night. Ultimately, it's not about Jesus washing feet, but Jesus going to the cross. In the upper room, Jesus took up a garment, but on the cross, his garments were taken off. He was stripped naked before the world to bear the shame of the world. In the upper room, he knelt low, but on the cross, he was raised up for everybody to see. In the upper room, Jesus poured a bowl of water to wash away dirt, and on the cross, water and blood poured out of his side to wash away the sins of the world. The eternal Son of God has no constraints. Talk about negative freedom. There's nothing that God can't do that he wants to do. But the Son of God gave it up. And he took on the limitations of a human body, limitations of time and space. And he lived a sinless life where he went to the cross and took on the limits of a crown of thorns and being flogged and whipped. And ultimately, the, the literal constraints of nails that fixed him to a cross. And of course, the great irony is that while his onlookers mocked him and said, you said you were going to save us all and you can't even save yourself, he could have gotten off the cross in a blink of an eye. He could have called down a legion of angels and wiped all of his onlookers out. He could have gotten off in a moment if he wanted to, but he embraced the loss of freedom. Why? To serve. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did it to love. He did it to free us. 
if Jesus would pick up the towel and the basin to wash feet and he, he would go to the cross to wash our souls, can't we serve one another? Can't we imitate him and love one another? Can't we demote our own preferences and elevate the preferences of others? Can't we, as Paul said in Philippians 2, take on the mind of Christ by doing nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility, considering others as more important than ourselves? Can we not stop looking to our own interests at church and in our families and in life and instead elevate the interests of others? True freedom is not the absence of constraint. It's willingly taking on the right constraints. True freedom is not living however you want. It's living according to your design and according to your redemption. I always go back to this analogy. It's so helpful to me. A fork is not very free when it's trying to be a spoon. It's kind of hard to eat soup with a fork. A fish is not very free when it decides to be a bird and fly up onto the shore. And you and I are not very free when we decide to live enslaved to our flesh. That's not freedom. It's the worst kind of slavery. Rather, we are free when we first receive and believe in Jesus Christ, who said, I will give you freedom, and those to whom the Son gives freedom are free indeed. And we experience that freedom when we imitate him and serve one another through love.